Okay, gents. What moment in history predating film do you wish we could have captured? Well, I, when you say that, I, I think about theater and I think about Shakespeare and how there's so much Shakespeare's plays are so bereft of direction. Uh, you basically have enter, exit, exit pursued by bear. You know, you've got a couple and not a lot. And so we don't really know what he intended for certain scenes, how he intended them to play out, how he intended them to look. I would love to know how Shakespeare himself intended Hamlet stabbing Polonius or, or uh, how he wanted, in particular, how was he playing or how was uh, the Merchant of Venice and Shylock played? There's such debate over whether Shylock is meant to be a mockery or an empathetic character and being able to see how the original actor performed the role would give us all the information we need. Uh, even if we didn't hear it, just to see the movements and, and how he played it would give us all the info we need. So that's something that I truly wish we had been able, had had cameras and, and cinema existed, you know, centuries prior. That's something I wish had been captured on film is just to know how they, how these works were performed. I think for me, I would want to see the Industrial Revolution that whole time period i just i want to see from the beginning to the end because i'm interested in seeing all of that stuff the way the world used to be and seeing the slow steady progress the early stages of the world we kind of are living in today um i know it's easy like to say the west like the wild west or to see like um when jesus was supposedly born and when he lived but um I think it's easy to kind of understand, easier to understand the more primitive ways of the world. Whereas I, I'm more, I'm very interested in that transitory period of where things start going one way from a way they used to be. It's one of the things that I talk about when it comes to uh, like World War One and how that was such a new version of war and kids that grew up with like parents or grandparents that fought World War, uh, not World, in the Civil War. Or, you know, all, all these things, all of a sudden they're fighting in a war where they see tanks coming over the hills and flamethrowers being shot out of trenches. Just what, what that culture shock must be like uh, in a way that we don't really get anymore. So I, I, I would, I'd be very interested to see how it really was back then uh, while everything uh, starts changing. And it almost seems like miracles are start happening every day because of the way technology is starting to catch up to uh, the human mind and engineering and all that stuff. If this is your first podcast, remember, it's for listening. Please don't bite your iPhone. We're talking 1922's Nanook of the North here on You're Missing Out with special guest Matthew Serrano. Our guest today is the director of Live from the Space Stage, A Halix Story. Uh, Matthew Serrano joins us today on the show. Hi, how are you guys doing? Welcome, welcome. Good. How are things on How are things on your end? This is we've got a bit of a time difference going on, so I hope everything's all right uh, on your uh, in your neck of the woods. Things are going great. Uh, the fires near us have really started to die down, uh, so it's nice being able to walk outside and not get like a fistful of ash down your throat. <laughs> so that's been wonderful. And uh, yeah, people have been loving uh, our, our Halix documentary. I was a uh, backer during your fundraising for... for oh, really? Stage. Thank you. 
And and in fact, uh, by accident, I have a weird distinction in your credits because uh, I donated to your project. And then uh, another member of my family is a big uh, Disney Parks fan and loves the Defunct Land series and all. And they said, well, I want to donate too. Uh, but they couldn't figure out how to do it. So I had a second uh, account that I had set up for fundraising. I said, hey, do it through that. And then, you know, if it comes around to it, we'll just let them know, like, oh, put your name in the credits. And uh, we screwed up and never did that. So if you look in the credits for, uh, if listeners, if you look in the credits for Live from the Space Stage, it will say Mike Natalie, and then immediately underneath, Mike Natalie. So uh, I, I un- <laughs> I've accidentally listed twice in the credits for your film, and I'm sorry. No, that's okay. That just shows my shows my full enthusiasm. Uh, Kevin, I know Kevin was working on that, and he was really nervous when he was typing the final credits. He was like, God, I give people so many opportunities to give me their names. I really hope that they don't. <laughs> <laughs> like come back at me mad i i've been a fan of yours for a while i remember uh when when remain seated please the the hoot and chief story the short came out um so i was hoping we could talk a little bit first uh for our listeners about uh your work and, and how you got into uh doing documentaries and specifically your type of documentary that you're focused on right now well it's funny i i got into filmmaking uh wanting to do narrative films and uh, I remember I was wrapping up my college stuff at the school I went to, Saddleback College. It's a community college down in Mission Viejo, California. And my mom actually was the one that suggested to me, hey, why don't, since you're kind of just like filling classes just for the sake of filling classes, because I had well beyond fulfilled all my credits that I needed for my film stuff, but I just wanted to keep taking classes because it was really, really cheap doing it the way I was doing it because I was part of this K-12 through program. And yeah, so my mom suggested to me, why don't you take a documentary class? And I was like, documentaries aren't real movies. Those are real filmmakers. I'm above that. I, what? And then she was like, well, you never know. Like you could learn something from doing it. Like don't, don't sell yourself short on just focusing on one thing. And I was like, oh, well, I guess you're right. And so I took the documentary course and very quickly matured as a filmmaker Realized I was an idiot for thinking that documentaries weren't real movies. They are. Um, they are, in some cases, harder to make than narrative films. Uh, someone someone described it to me recently where they said documentary filmmaking is screenwriting. And I think, honestly, if that was advertised more, I think a lot more people would take documentary courses and would take an interest into documentaries. Because, yeah, I am so much of a better writer now having made documentaries uh, than I was in the past. Yeah, I, I, I started making documentaries and fell in love with it. And I was working on a student project that had been getting around into a couple of film festivals. And that was kind of slowing down and wasn't really going anywhere. And so I had like these weeks where I was like, okay, well, I can't work on anything right now. And I had a conversation with uh, my friend Jordan Nascaro, who later on went to be one of the composers for life in the space stage, a Halix story. And we were talking about theme parks. We were talking about theme park music. And I was telling him, you know, well, the best theme park music ever, the best collection of, of theme park music from a single land or show or attraction is uh, Horizons. In my opinion, Horizons has the best uh, kind of set list of music of, of any theme park, anything. And when I told him that, he was like, yeah, I've always wanted to get into Horizon stuff. Like, are there any fan websites that I should look up? And I was like, 
well, you can look up this one, you can look up that one, but there's one I really recommend. And I told him about this blog called Mesa Verde Times. Mesa Verde Times is a blog about these two guys who snuck around on the Epcot ride horizons while it was still open. And it took photos and they made blog posts and made comic strips about their adventures, recorded audio. And then they also have a bunch of video footage that they put on their YouTube channel. And after this conversation, I was like, you know what? I've never actually gone through and watched all of their footage. And I kind of wanted to just sit down and just immerse myself into their story. And I pulled up their YouTube channel and I saw that every single video on the channel had like a thousand views, under a thousand views. And I was like, how has no one seen this? And the last upload they had made on their channel was of spoilers for those who haven't seen my documentary. The last video was of Hoot burning cheese ashes at Walt Disney World. And I remember sitting there thinking, well, one, this is clearly the ending to some sort of a story. And the other thought that I had was, why not, if I'm going to sit here and watch through all this footage, why not, instead of just watching it, I download it, all of it and catalog it? Because I have been doing a lot of cataloging archival footage in the months leading up to this uh, for my other projects I was working on. And that's kind of what started me working on what later became Remain Seated, Please. And that... that I remember that took off. People were, you know, that was when I remember when that, that documentary came out, people were talking about it and this this weird story. And that's kind of what drew me to your work and, and why I wanted you on for this film in particular is, I, I think what's interesting about what you've done both with Remain Seated, Please, and with Halix, you know, it, it's easy to say, oh, it's a theme park documentary, theme park history. A lot of people do that, but the stories you've chosen to focus on are stories about people and people who... You know, these things that mattered so much to them uh, and mattered so much to a certain group of people in a moment that would have otherwise been forgotten. A story of, uh, you know, two guys, two, uh, I'm assuming they were uh, native Floridians, but two Florida kids uh, sneaking into a theme park ride is not a story that is probably going to get much traction, you know, uh, from mainstream film or anything like that, but you know, we all have those stories that we lived and those those things we experienced, uh, you know, whatever it is that, that are so alive for us. Uh, I mean, you know, to keep it on the topic of amusement parks, I know that, uh, you know, Tom and I are both uh, native Long Islanders here in New York. And our childhood amusement park was this place called Adventureland. And every once in a while when it crops up, it was made into a feature film that uh, the, the Jesse Eisenberg, Kristen Stewart film uh, was about that park. And then uh, the... The um, Safety Brothers Good Time shot at that park, and when you see really, that, yeah, that's the uh, if you saw Good Time, the the amusement park, yeah, absolutely wild, and wow, and no kidding, yeah, I've never seen it, I've never seen the Jesse Eisenberg film, but I'm a huge fan of Good Time, and uh, that just blew my mind. It's so accurate that when he looks at the GPS and showing him driving down Route 110 into Adventureland, that's how you get there. It is all dead on. Yeah, there's something about how, I mean, because Adventure, they changed it in, in the Adventureland movie. They changed it to, like, Pennsylvania. It's not really, like, Adventureland. It's just based on Greg Matola's experience working in the Long Island Adventureland. But mm-hmm. seeing it in a, in a Safdie Brothers movie in that way was, and then just, they pull out with the helicopter shot and just driving down the road that I've driven down to work, like, for two years was just one of the weirdest things in the world for such a specific 
like nobody except for the people on Long Island would know thing. That was really special. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and and so that's what what you're doing when you do that, and Halix too, especially is this idea. I mean, you talk about in the film how how Halix had fans, people showed up for them, people knew what they were, and then it just disappeared, and it was this ephemeral thing that now people are able to access again, and, and people, you know, it's it's weird. Like, when I watched Live from the Space Stage, now I certainly uh, had never, I hadn't been to Disneyland until last year. I, I never saw Halix, I never knew anything about Halix until uh, the guys on Podcast The Ride brought it up one episode. That's how my, that's how Kevin found out about it, too. Yeah, well, because he was, he was, uh, you had them in the, the documentary as well, the, the podcast, The Ride Hosts. That's right, yeah, because that was one of our early interviews when we were like, well, we have no idea who we can get in contact, we have no idea who we can talk to, so at the very least, we know we can talk to them, because we wouldn't have known about this if it weren't for them. Yeah, and that's right, I should, I, it should be mentioned that uh, Live from the Space Stage, you did in collaboration with um, Kevin Perger, who is uh, the creator of Defunct Land, which is a very popular uh, YouTube channel that does these mini documentaries about uh, it started out as the history of defunct attractions in major theme parks and has now in its third season taken on a new direction of chronicling the history of American amusements in a way he did a, his Coney Island episode again as, as New Yorkers his Coney Island episode was exceptional and, and delightful to me it's wonderful yeah I was a big fan of Kevin's content before working with him and so um when he messaged me about possibly doing something, I was very excited to work with him. And now having worked with him, I never want to work with him again. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Kevin, actually, actually, what's been really great is Kevin has been the greatest collaborator I've ever had because I'm someone who really appreciates people that don't blow smoke up my you-know-what. I like people that tell me, this sucks, you can do better. And that was what Kevin would do is Kevin would always be pushing for like, you know, like, uh, you're not trying hard enough in these interviews or like you can do better with the editing or, you know, try, try this, try re rewriting the script again. And like every time it was never like a, a thing of like, you know, like, screw you, Kevin, how dare you? I'm, <laughs> I'm Steven Spielberg. How dare you talk to me like this? But it was like, you know, it was always, uh, wanted, uh, and, uh, appreciated. And I'd imagine it was an extra challenge because um, I don't believe it has been confirmed if he is, in fact, just a robot or not. <laughs> you know, since, no one, since no one has ever seen him, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I have, don't know. I have seen the real Kevin Perger. I've had oh. pina coladas, virgin pina coladas at Trader Sam's with that Kevin Perger. Uh, oh, wow. The scoops we're getting here. Uh, I wanted to go back and uh, bring something up that I thought about. Because you were, you were talking earlier about like the films that I've made, and a quote a quote came to mind, and I just looked it up because I tried to remember what the exact quote was. But uh, it's a quote that Belloc says to Indy when he's talking about the idol and Raiders, where he goes, "Look at this, it's worthless. Ten dollars for a vendor in the street, but I take it, I bury it in the sand for a thousand years, it becomes priceless." And that to me is kind of a little bit like the films that I made, where it's like. There are so many rides that are so well documented. And to me, I remember watching the Imagineering story, and this is going to be kind of a bit of a hot take, but I actually kind of thought the Imagineering story was boring in some parts because it's kind of telling us what we already knew. And there's something about, yeah, like the, the stories that I, I've chosen to tell, there's, there's one that, that extra special thing of like, because of the fact that it's something that no one really knows about, there's that. 
but then there's also the yeah exactly what you said like the, the the whole people aspect behind it that's something that's really interested me and we'll talk about it later but that's something that really interested me about Nanook of the North is that I love that even though it's this really really um like for lack of a better word like primitive documentary because it's one of if not the first documentary ever made you still get that like people aspect of it you still get that like you still get an idea of Nanook's character which is really that was what was really impressive to me about watching that movie well, with not uh, you know, with no further ado, let's dive into that. Let's start this off. I'm going to read the National Film Registry's statement as to why they inducted Nanook of the North. They said, A film now synonymous with the documentary form and with Eskimo life, Robert Flaherty's filmed record of an Inuit family living in Arctic Canada set down many of the standards for nonfiction filmmaking while also expanding film's ability to document vanishing cultures. Though Flaherty's authenticity has been called into question, its emotional impact and artistic style still resonate. So that is why the National Film Industry said they uh, selected the film. This is, of course, the only uh, documentary in the initial inaugural year. It is also, uh, at least in terms of episodes we've recorded, uh, the oldest film we've done so far, uh, dating back uh, to uh, 1922. 1922, yeah. Yeah. Much much to my surprise, when I just finally said, all right, I got to watch this thing, I didn't look up anything about it, went to just watch to see where it was streaming, and they said, oh, this is a 1920s movie. I, okay, let's let's see what this is. So, Matt, to give you an idea of the vibe of our show uh, and the, the general way things work, uh, I do a metric shit ton of research before each episode. <laughs> <And> Tom, <laughs> Tom will just charge in uh, blind, but... Well, I well, I mean, because I'm a good like, mediator because I, I did a little bit of both. I did a little <laughs> bit of charging in blind, but then also a little bit of last second well, research of like, what is it that I'm watching? Well, I did a little a last second research too, but like when this was coming up and it was this was the you know, I, I wanted to wait until it was closer to recording to watch this things, <laughs> and I never heard of it. Like, so I, I was kind of like, I'm always excited to watch something for the first time, knowing nothing about it. There's something pure about that experience. Tom, so I went, Tom, can I can I can I sell you out a little bit here? What? Um, the best thing about this is you were supposed to have seen this film before. We shared a class where we watched it, and you just left during that class. I mean, we we <laughs> at, at a certain point in that semester of documentary uh, documentary film where we just watched it, uh, we both just stopped going to class. This... <laughs> Because she didn't realize we weren't in class. That's true. That's true. Uh, but, see, but that's, that's no, but like that's the beautiful thing is is that you can be the kind of person who, uh, you know, ditches your documentary class because I don't know you've got a girlfriend you want to hang out with instead, or and then you end up nothing, or you could pay attention in your documentary classes and make uh, you know now uh, well received documentaries about uh, you know events in theme park history that are getting. Uh, written up all over the place. So that's an important lesson for everyone listening here is stay in school. Um, I'll keep that in mind next time. <laughs> uh, but let's get into it. Let's talk about Nanook. Let's get into this. Um, I'm so excited, uh, Matthew, to have you here. Uh, you hadn't seen it before, right? I had not. I Actually, I was going to say, raise your hand if your first exposure to this documentary was from Documentary Now. <laughs> because that, that was mine. I, I remember watching the Documentary Now sketch going, sketch going what? is this based off of 
Oh, well, we all, everyone loves Pipalock. Uh, one of the finest. One of the finest. <laughs> that Still is, haven't Tom, did you ever documentary s- now either. Oh, my God. It, Bill Hader is playing the Robert Flaherty stand-in, but uh, the Nanook character essentially takes over the film, and it's glorious. Are you, Pipalock was talking about mise-en-scene all of a sudden. I don't know. <laughs> Brilliant. Only seen the Grey Gardens episode, oh, one, but I do have. I do have, too. I do have seasons one and two on my desk because it was ten dollars on Amazon to buy that pack. So okay, oh, it's I great. It. It's absolutely. Also, anytime great. someone uh, talks about a drone, I just go drones, drones. Oh mm. my god, beautiful. Um, but yes, yeah, so Nanook. I, so you had not seen this uh, before, but I, I knew. Uh, you know, I was, I was so glad to, that you agreed to come on for it, especially because, like I said, there is that. It's not just that this is, you know, one of the quintessential documentaries, but it's this fascinating thing where it straddles this line. And the questions raised, I mean, there are people now who take the film to task for the fact that he staged scenes, you know, that that Flaherty, because he was not setting out to make a film even, he was invited on this expedition uh, to basically just be an explorer. uh, And he decided, I'll bring a camera along. And uh, maybe I'll shoot some stuff. He had no real... I think he took a... I have he took a three-week course on cinematography in Rochester. So having just bought a camera on a whim and taken a three-week course in cinematography, he uh, essentially invents an entire genre. Which is... Yeah, it's, it's, you know, not the worst thing, right? <laughs> uh, but it's... it's Flaherty, you know, the interesting thing is that there there had been... I mean, I'm sure we've all seen them. Those there are there are films that you could call documentary because there are those um, films from obviously the Edison Black Maria Studio and the Lumiere Brothers, which were just setting up a camera and documenting things happening. You know, we I mean, of course, we all know about the train coming into the station, right? Yeah. But what Flaherty did, and the thing that he sort of innovated here, was the idea of crafting a narrative and focusing on one man and his family. And following his story, and yes, like I said, people kind of have taken Flaherty to task sometimes for what he staged and what he, you know, was, uh, was was not accurate about. But we have to remember that at the time, this had not the the rules of documentary filmmaking had not really been established. The term documentary did not even exist until uh, in a cinematic context until uh, somebody uh, John Grierson. Uh, reviewed Flaherty's follow-up film, uh, Moana, which is obviously not the Disney film, but, uh, you know, another uh, ethnography work. So those rules had not been established yet uh, of what you could or couldn't do and and how you could do things. I do think it's it's interesting, though, because I think even now when you're making documentaries, I mean, Matthew, I'm surely you've had to... When you were making uh, with Live from the Space Stage, when you were starting to film it, you did not know who you could get. You didn't know what you would find out. So along the way, you had to kind of figure out what the story of this film would be, right? Yeah, it was really interesting because, you know, when we first found out about, you know, Kevin told me in in that initial conversation, you know, look up Halix. When I looked it up, the only thing you could find was like maybe four photos, three auto recordings on YouTube, and uh, two blog posts. And that was it. And spoilers for live from the space age immediately we found out that okay laura's dead so now we have to reach out to all these band members and try to get a band back together 
in which we already know that the lead singer is dead. And this is at the time, 38 years later. So who knows how many people that were involved in the band, that were in the band, that saw the band are even still alive, let alone want to talk about this. So it was a miracle, you know, finding all the things that we found and, and getting all the interviews that we got. And you also had to figure out uh, what the story was that you were telling. And in the same way that Flaherty, you know, it wasn't as though he was, uh, you know, he was he was just capturing moments as they came up. And then when he got into when him and his his uh, his spouse, I believe it's his um, it's his wife was Francis Flaherty. Uh, was editing it, and it was then that they found uh, the the story and the arc of Nanook, which I think is is interesting. Now, Matt, you were saying you had something you wanted to talk about specifically when it came to to Nanook and the and the way that it focused on the character or the the, the figure of, I guess you could say character because Nanook is actually not the. Uh, I'm sure you guys noticed Nanook is not actually the the man's real name. Yeah. Right. Uh, I can't remember. I never read up on why they named it Nanook. Uh, I don't. I I couldn't find a why. Uh, oh wait, hang on. As a main character, no, I I could not figure out why he. A chose lot, a lot, there's a lot. There's like that's kind of the tough part of this movie is there's really not a lot of like background info or like ways to kind of find out why something was done. Like why change the name. Why, like, it's just, it's like almost like it just happened, and now it's just, there's nothing, there's no info other than some sprinklings here and there, and some stuff that may or may not be true of. Well, maybe Nanook didn't actually die of starvation in the woods, he might have died of tuberculosis, and he'd actually not done these thing, this thing, or that thing. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to make it, uh, to talk about this movie because of how little there is it also yeah it also makes you wonder like how much of that intro uh title sequence is factual even yeah i mean because even just the little bits you you hear it's like okay there's a little bit of maybe some things are inaccurate here and uh, you know you can't even watching it before getting into the little bit of research i did you can even feel like okay they kind of faked some of these shots in the igloo because they, they, this is pretty well framed and yeah. they built an igloo and then, well, how did the camera get in here now? And, you know, um, but it, yeah, I think that's kind of the, maybe the most interesting part of the movie is the balance between truth and fiction and ultimately does that really matter? Since they did actually film this stuff, it wasn't like you know, filmed on a soundstage. Yeah, I mean, it's and it's like we talked about before. I, I mean, I think that there's there's always going to be some level of artifice in documentary filmmaking. I mean, it depends on... I mean, think about the people who were in an uproar when Thin Blue Line came out who felt like Errol Morris using recreations was somehow a violation of the rules of documentary filmmaking. And there's nobody who's going to argue that now. Or like Werner Herzog... Um, you know, has has fully admitted that his documentaries, he'll just add things in of, I think, um, I don't, uh, Matthew, are you a fan of, of Herzog's documentaries at all? I actually haven't seen any of Werner Herzog's uh, films. 
My, the only filmography I'm familiar with of Werner Herzog is Mandalorian. <laughs> only familiar with his acting. He's he's great. He's a he's a weird maniac. Uh, I actually had the fortune of he came to New York once for a screening, and uh, I met him and gave him a custom T-shirt we made at my college, and he wore it during the Q and A. He's a maniac, and I love That's him. Amazing. Um, but in his film, I'm sorry. Uh, in his film, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. There's this shot that just shows this lizard, and he goes, well, this is the oldest lizard left alive. It saw the cave. And, and he fully admits, he's like, no, it wasn't. That, no, it wasn't. I just said that because it has good ambiance. And it's like, yeah, okay. Sorry, Tom, you were starting to say? Okay, because so, this is even, like, cropping up uh, within the last year because this documentary, Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, has come out. And it's a, a quote-unquote documentary about the last 18 hours of a Las Vegas dive bar before it closes its doors for good. Um, but people kind of got pissed off when they found out, no, it's not actually in Las Vegas, it's in New Orleans. The bar isn't closed, and all of the so-called denizens of the bar were actors that the director, the documentarians cast. So uh, kind of throwing a whole, uh, a big curveball into the whole idea of, well... Is it then actually a documentary if it's literally just none of this is accurate? Yeah, so to it, me, it, to me, like that brings up a good point. I think, I think, to me, like what makes a documentary is uh, capturing like a, a truth. However, you do it doesn't matter, and I think that's what kind of gets brought up in the controversies behind Nanook of the North. But in my opinion, I feel like as long as you are actually capture something. As long as you're capturing something that's real, it doesn't matter how you capture it. That's kind of my opinion on documentaries. And so I feel like that example you brought up, since it's not even a real bar and none of those people are real and their stories aren't real, then it's definitely not a documentary. But for something like Nanook of the North, it's like, okay, sure, maybe they're filming inside of a half igloo. But they had to build the igloo the same way they would have built a real igloo. So is it really, like, that disingenuous? And, like, sure, maybe they told them, go kill this animal that you probably wouldn't have killed at that time in that space. And maybe it's not entirely that natural. But they're still really going out there and doing what they would have already done. Everything that they do in the movie is something that they would have already done. It's just set up in a certain yeah. way. So It feels almost like the only real, like, quote-unquote phony stuff in the movie is what Flaherty adds in the, the interstitial title cards. Because... If you don't have any of those cards in between and you just watch it, there's no real way other than some of those shots in the igloo of going, well, this is fake. It's clearly they're in the Canadian tundra. This is like real. They're doing these things. They're killing a seal, um, a walrus. Uh, they're, you know, they're doing all these things and it's clear, but then it's those clear flarity touches where you go, okay, so he's, he's tweaking it. Uh, to to give it a little more of a narrative push. Uh, what what's the Mike? What's the phrase that Werner Herzog uses when he talks about uh, documentaries? The what truth? Uh, the ecstatic truth. Ecstatic truth. Yes. Yeah. So even if it's not a hundred percent like okay, we literally just placed the camera and these amazing things unfolded without us editing. It's it's as long as you don't completely fake the bar in Las Vegas as a that's actually in New Orleans and just tweak things a little bit. You're searching for the ecstatic truth, not the actual truth. 
Right, because otherwise anything else is just security camera footage, and that's not yeah. a movie. And so an example that I have in our movie, in uh, Life in the Space Stage, is there's a scene where uh, Bambi Moe is going through the blank vinyl jacket sleeve that was going to house the first printing of the Halix album that never got made. And she's sitting there and she's talking through it and flipping through the autographs. And then she gets on Laura's autograph and reads it. And she's like, you know, it sounds a little foreboding, like it wasn't going to happen. And that was from Laura. And she just kind of sits there and has, has this moment where she's staring at the autograph. And all of that is completely fabricated. Not in the way of that moment didn't really happen. But that moment, those moments were stretched across like five minutes. And I basically took what made the most sense and stringed it together into one 30-second thing. And I remember Bambi called me after she watched the movie and she brought that moment up and she said, it's so interesting. I could tell that you had edited that part together, but it didn't feel phony. You actually, through the editing, were able to capture the feeling of that day. When I, when I was going through the vinyl record and I was having all of these feelings coming back to me and realizing the foreboding aspect of Laura's little autograph that she had written there and so that's kind of what i'm i'm I'm, I'm talking about it's a good example of what we're talking about here of like even though that moment didn't really happen i still did capture like in a way what really did happen because that was the feeling of that day and that was her feeling and, and all of that is genuine and none of that is acting it's just heightened in a way and i think i think the other thing with that too is we're all so i mean I, it's strange because documentary filmmaking uh, involves real people and uh, involves real lives. It's the only genre of filmmaking that they have created uh, these sort of ethical rules for what you can and can't do. I mean, you don't have anybody ever sit down and go, well, I'm sorry, uh, a musical can't do that. Well, you can't have somebody sing like this. You know, you don't have those rules. But we've created all of these rules for what a documentary can or can't do. And you kind of have to appreciate uh, – a couple times I appreciate the people who kind of break those rules. I mean, nothing is more fun than watching uh, Orson Welles' F for Fake and how he just kind of throws it all out. Um, but also with Flaherty, we can't really apply the rules that we've since established for a genre on the film that – helped create the genre you know i think that becomes well, difficult well it's it's the problem with anything that's the first i mean we've we've dealt with this a few times already i mean uh this anytime something's the first it's usually gonna be the be something that maybe doesn't uh age as well as the things it inspired because well it was the first it was making these things up as it went and then things got massaged and people figured out the best way to do these things and uh you know you could look back at Nanook and still see it as a great you know influential documentary but you could also go back and look at like okay they this i mean yeah this is the first the first one to do it pretty much and this doesn't feel like to bring it back to 2020, the documentary that Matthew Serrano directed that uh, we all have seen, uh, you know, there's a much different feel and just the way the 
you know, quote unquote, filmmaking rules have changed and all that stuff. So um, it's it's it, it is always in, weird to go back to the first and um, try to hold it up against something that's doing, you know, like the last one you saw. Like I watched um, uh, They Shall Not Grow Old today. And honestly, it's not too dissimilar from what Nanook did. I mean, it's literally just using footage from World War One doing some massaging and adding up sound effects and colorization, but it's nothing like, like just the filmmaking and the structure and the pacing is nothing like Nanook. So I can't like, I can't club Nanook in the North over the head and say, you fucked up. You're a bad movie because a hundred years later, Peter Jackson made a documentary kind of like yours and he made it different and better than yours. It's like, nah, I mean, it's 1920, 20, what, you know, whenever this actually came out. I mean, I, I think the one thing that we run into with this, and and uh, to touch on the one touch, touchy thing with this, uh, you know, this is this is far from the the most problematic film on our list. Uh, you know, you uh, Matthew, we've already recorded our Gone with the Wind and the Searchers episodes, so uh, we've already gotten over that. Uh, yeah, been great, but um, <laughs> but you do kind of feel like there is this element of Nanook being the first. You you kind of judge it based on in part what you've seen since and what and where you see it in the DNA of other documentaries, good and bad. And of course, you know, you can find evidence of it in, in so many things. I mean, I, I looked at it in the scene where they're, uh, where you're watching these people put the seal skins, uh, on the canoe. You still see that on things like, you know, Kamau Bell's United Shades or Anthony Bourdain. You still get to see those, you know, moments captured, but at the same time, through no fault, really of Flaherty's, I also kept getting vibes of Mondo Cane and the those Italian pseudo documentary exploitation films yeah. that were just excuses to show uh, naked women, you know, and and exploit uh, people of other cultures, and would literally uh, lie throughout the documentary and go, "Well, this is a mating dance," or well, uh, you know, watch as these savages murder a turtle. And it turns out they paid him, like, you know, they just gave him money to kill a turtle. Like, it's... And it's it's hard. It's it's a challenge because it's 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 hard not to... To shut off that part of your brain that wants to blame this film. Especially in moments like Flaherty staged Nanook not understanding the phonograph. Yeah. And biting the record. Which, oh. uh, you know... Or like you know, you, you one little bit you you I saw is that um, you know they make it in the movie like oh they he never you know dealt with white man or whatever where it's like well no he he has he he like they've kind of scaled back a lot of what his reality was to kind of get at the ecstatic truth but yeah. almost by accident because it really doesn't feel like. He's trying to be like, oh, look at these dirty savages or anything. But by trying to, like, maybe even take back the reality of their lives by, like, 10 years or whatever. Like, maybe this was what it was like 10 years before they filmed. It accidentally ends up coming off, like, a little, a little, a little racist. A little bit of that, oh, well, look look at them in their weird ways. And they never, they never did this. They've never seen a phonograph. And you go, okay, I mean... Those are a few of the moments where you kind of hit up against, eh. Something I find funny and interesting is, like, yeah, like, the whole idea of, like, depicting them as savages. 
the the whole thing with the record, I was like, okay, give me a break. Like, I'm sure he wasn't actually doing this. And yeah, I had a feeling that that part was staged. But then throughout the movie, those guys used their mouths for everything. <laughs> for like the craziest things. He's like, he caught, he caught the fish. I'm like, okay, so hit it with a club. And then he just puts the fish head into his mouth and just bites it. I'm like, okay. And then he's like licking his knife full of just like raw blood. They're just eating raw carcasses, <laughs> like yeah. licking canoes and stuff. I was like, okay, maybe like, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think just... the record's not far off. Yeah, that, that's they why I don't care what they put their mouths on. That's well, why it feels like he's he's almost like t- trying to turn back the clock ten years. Where like, okay, maybe Nanook or people or somebody in Nanook situation would have reacted like that to the phonograph, or they re- relate a story. Oh, when I saw a phonograph for the first time, I did this thing. But then it it has that feel of like, okay, well, it feels a little less natural than some of the other stuff Nanook is doing, like you know, turning his uh, walrus knife even sharper by licking it and instantly freezing the saliva. Wait. And uh, it, it's getting to that ecstatic truth is kind of those moments where it trips on itself a bit sometimes. But what I love about that moment with the record, the one thing I do love is Nanook is such a character in this film and is such a a personality that you feel as opposed to, you know, I watched a bunch of the other uh, uh, Oscar winning docs in prep for this because I was kind of like, you know, let me get a sense of what came after. And a lot of the other ethnography films that came out can be something like there's a film that won uh, back in the 60s, I believe, called Sky Above, Mud Below, that is one of the most condescending, uh, you know, the white man treks across Africa films you've ever seen. This film never has that tone because even in the scene with the phonograph, what I love about that moment in a way is that you feel like, yes, it was staged, however for this moment, the actor in the role of Nanook is aware that the joke is funny. Like, you feel as though, and we can never know, but just from the way he's playing that moment, you feel as though Flaherty kind of had a conversation of, wouldn't it be funny if you did this? And he understood, like, yeah, this would be funny. Because he's playing it funny. You know, that the... You you can see from the smile on his face, like, he's aware that this is a, a joke. This is a, a fun bit. And especially because at the time... None of them knew they were making a documentary. He just brought a camera and he's like, let's have fun. Let's do this. I I kind of love how much of a personality. Nanook, I mean, the, the opening shot is probably my favorite in the movie is just Nanook looking straight into the camera. You know? Yeah. And he's, I mean, they also have he's lots of times through. where Nanook is smiling, too. Yes. And that and you, really and you, humanizes him because, man, it's so hard to, like, care for people when you're watching these all these silent films especially silent film documentaries like this one the literal first one and little moments like that are so crucial i remember when i was making remain seated please i was kind of running into the same problem where it was a little bit like the nanook of the north thing where you know these guys boot and chief are not filming for the sake of capturing footage for a documentary they're capturing just complete raw, rough footage just for their own sake of going home later and rewatching. And so I made sure to throw in every single moment of them talking to each other so that you got the, the best idea of their friendship so that that loss at the end would 
would be felt more because you had all of this time to spend with them to see really their friendship. Because if you didn't have any idea for the friendship they had, and if you didn't care, then the ending wouldn't hit as hard. And that's how I feel a little bit about Nanook of the North, because, you know, when I read about him dying of starvation, I actually was like, no, like I actually felt really sad because I really felt like I had been on this journey with him and I could relate to him. He wasn't just some, for lack of a better word, savage living out in the, in the, in the Arctic, you know, there's a guy with the family just, just going about his day doing what he had to do. It, it it helps make the document it help i mean it makes it feel real cuz one you can't fake a face like that i mean that's the face of a guy who lives in the wilderness who lives in the tundra and just him smiling all the time is like yeah this is his life he's he's not like this isn't the revenant where everyone's just fucking miserable being out in the woods this is like no they they're happy they've made a life for themselves they know how to do this so he can have fun and be a real human being and not just some one note dour slog be like oh well look at how hard the life of the inuits are if only they had the tools to overcome their inuit sensibilities to become a modern man it's like no he's he's fine he's cool he's he's loving this every moment of his life he's cool he's got his dogs he's got his family he's fucking around i mean my favorite part and the thing that makes me love nanook is um it's towards the end when he's trying to fish for the, I think the seal or the walrus or whatever, and he's got the line in the hole, and he yeah. keeps just like it's like a, it's like a Marx Brothers or like a Charlie Chaplin or whatever scene of him like constantly like trying to pull it and falling back and pull it and falling back, and it's just this, and he's never like I don't, it's just well, one his physical comedy there is great, a plus there, Nanook. I'm gonna give you the inspiration uh, for Charlie Chaplin. He stole your routine, buddy. Um, <laughs> but it, it's just it's. Again, it's just those little moments that you, even if it's maybe massaged a little bit, you can't fake the reality of, no, he's fishing for a goddamn giant animal in the ocean under a giant block of ice, and he's cool with it. He's fine. This isn't bothering him at all. I also think there's an element to this, and and the thing you run into with a lot of later works of ethnography, uh, particularly things like the Mondo Kanes, uh, and and sky above Mublo, things like that, is they always come from an outsider's perspective, and they treat their subjects with an otherness. They treat them as primitive or something other. And the beauty of what Flaherty captures in this is it's about the nook, it's about his family, it's about his dogs, and it's essentially trying to instead create this bridge at a time where no one was really doing this. Of oh. No, 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 this is not some other people. This is not some strange way of life. This this is you. This man is just like you. He's got a family. He's putting food on the table. Look, here's this moment where he's teaching a kid to hunt, so they make little animals out of snow, and you watch the little snow animals and the bow and arrow, and your heart melts, and you... It's a, it's a, a bridge movie. It's not saying, oh, look at how strange, or, or, or look at these other people. It's essentially a movie that tries to convey... Yeah, if you were born here, this is you. There's no difference between you and this person other than geographical circumstances, you know? Like, these are not others. These are, we're all just people and we're all doing the same things. Yeah, in that respect, um, it's a brilliant movie. 
but also it is for me personally a hard watch just because of the fact that it's a silent film and i'm starting to realize that um uh silent films put me to sleep (laughs) i don't know why but i always watch them late at night and i never finish them because i always fall asleep they're the only movies i ever fall asleep during and this one i was doing pretty good it's not that long of a of a silent film it's only what like an hour 20 hour 14 something like that yeah and um i was so i was so soothed by the igloo building scene which is near the end (laughs) (laughs) that's the part i fell asleep to and I had to wake up today and finish it and go, go back to where I was and, and finish where I left off. Well, well, it's On that, the plus it's, side, everything's so chaotic now. Now you know if you need to chill out at any point, just watch someone build an igloo and you're set. I mean, that's oh, the plus side of it. You know. <laughs> build a snowman? Fuck you. Build an igloo. That's something interesting. Um, just the way no, his I mean, perfectly goes through the snow to create these perfect blocks. And God, when he was putting the little puppies uh, in their little... The, the little nook in oh. Nanook's nook. When Nanook was building his nook, I was, uh, I wish, I was just wishing that someone could just pack me into a little <laughs> snow nook with all those good boys. Oh, yeah, those, those are such good boys. Um, Except when they yeah, weren't I, being good boys, and that was scary. The realization of like, okay, you you've gone all the way out to wherever you gotta hunt or fish. You've got your food, which was already a huge undertaking. Now, instead of getting home, it's not like today where it's like, oh, no, I got to go fill up gas or, oh, no, I got to go pump up my tire. It's like, oh, no, the dogs all want to kill each other because they're hungry and we can't get in the way of of stopping their fighting. I feel like that wasn't a moment that was set up. I feel like that was probably a very real moment that happened. Some territorial shit between the the dogs. I want I want to be the leader now. Fuck you. I I I you know I do kind of feel similar to Matt Matthew about the the silent film thing. Not that it really puts me to sleep or anything, but like you know I get it because it's that that lilting music and you kind of have to read every now and then, and so it kind of just lulls you to sleep. It's that old pacing where, and this one because it's the first documentary, it really doesn't have like a. I don't know, like a hook to like grab you by the neck and like drag you throughout the rest of the movie where it's like, oh, I can't wait to see where this goes. It's just like, oh, the day's over and they fell asleep. And uh, yeah, this is just the life for these people. And uh, okay, this is cool, but there's just uh, no real propulsion going on. Yeah, because the other thing is like, this is before like movies were movies because at at this point in time, for me at least, like, Silent films aren't really movies. They're kind of just motion, like exactly what the name motion picture is. They are just motion pictures. I feel like once you add in sound, that's when you get like the spectacle of what makes a movie a movie. Well, I will say it's interesting you say that, though, because the one thing that's worth noting is, you know, 1922, the same year that Nanook of the North comes out and, you know, changes documentaries. Here in America, I mean, we had had some Chaplin shorts, and obviously um, D.W. Griffith has produced his his epics. But 1922 is also the year that we get Nosferatu um, out of Germany, which is another film that really changes uh, the language of cinema for a lot of people. You know, and, and how how long after was Phantom of the Opera? Is it 26 or 25? I think I think it's 28. Oh uh, no, 25. Uh, 
25? 25. In 1925... Yeah, 1925 was Universal's Fan of the Opera. Yeah, 1925 is one of those years where you get Fan of the Opera, you get Charlie Chaplin's Gold Rush, and you get Battleship Potemkin. So that's like the, oh, the yeah. lightning bolt moment where it's like, oh, the entire... Everything is different now. Yeah, the language of film just hasn't really been figured out yet. Like, that's... I mean, that's what... That's why it's, like, kind of hard to watch Nanook of the North in 2020. Like, you can't hold it against it, but it's just like, okay, they really don't know... Like, there's no idea of how to, like, make this, like, make it propulsive to drag you along, to give you a sense of something. There's no real narrative. It's just a lot of, like... The spectacle is the fact that you're watching it. Yeah, it's yeah, it's being thrown it's like, into... Look at how amazing it is that you're watching this thing move. That's that's yeah. that's it. But what is cool about Nanook of the North is how you're just watching, like, something that, yeah, like, is real... Like this, like this is some. This is it's just crazy to watch. Like, wow, this is someone's life. Well, and well, the thing about um, it, people, most people would never see that. We take for granted. Um, right. I mean, I think about, I think about, you know, and, and to bring it to something that's uh, more in your wheelhouse, I think about the fact that I went out to, you know, I took my parents, uh, my parents and my family and I, we went out to Disneyland last year. And for me, I was like, oh, this is very exciting because I'm a big film history buff. And I'm a big Disney history buff. So I like walking around, looking at all stuff. But um, for someone like my father, it was very emotional because he was looking around and thinking it was saying. And this was, you know, going back to like the, the 50s, 60s. But he's like, I remember seeing Walt Disney present the TV show from Disneyland yeah. and thinking that was the only way I was ever going to see this. Even, you know, fairly recently this idea of like that film or television, like the camera offers people an opportunity to see something that they would never see. And the same is true for, um, if you've never seen it, I know you're not a, a you know, I know silent films put you to sleep, uh, but I will recommend <laughs> highly if you've never, especially for amusement parks, if you've never seen um, King Vidor's the crowd, we just did yeah. an episode on it recently with um, David Sims from the blank check podcast. And, um, in there's a sequence that Vidor shot in Coney Island with covert cameras, and you get to see what it was like to be at Coney Island in the twenties. And wow. I love that because I love Coney Island. But if you're in California at the time and you've heard about Coney Island, now you're seeing it. You're seeing the Wonder Wheel. You're seeing these these rides. Um, I mean, that's why I loved watching. Uh... They shall not grow old today. Like I watched it, I've been meaning to watch it, and today felt like the right time because it it has the same idea of literally like nobody could have any idea of what it was like to be in the trenches of World War One. It's this like this idea that's just like this tenuous, ob obscure idea you could have. Like, oh yeah, I get I I get it, but I don't really get it. Where you know you see nineteen seventeen. And you go, okay, that's what it's like. But to see the footage and what I thought was so brilliant about what that movie does, which is when they get to the trenches, the, the film blows up to full screen, colorized 4K, and it it takes away the distance that watching, like, say, like watching The Nook of the North, it's like, yeah, you're watching stuff you could have never seen in an area you never seen, a world you never seen. But there is that distance of like, okay, this was 100 years ago. There's something like I can't reach out and touch that. There's a there's a distance because of the black and white in the silent film. Bringing it into color, what that movie did I watched today is like 
okay, it takes away that distance and it really puts you in that mindset of, and again, it's just one of those things that you can't blame the nook of the North for that problem because it's not so much a problem so much as, well, art's tenuous. Yeah, well, it's also just art's tenuous and things change and, you know, Sometimes, you know, in 1920, they didn't, he didn't think, uh, oh, I'm making the first documentary and, oh, they're going to have sound in 10 years or, oh, they're going to have color cameras in like 15 years, which is just, you know. And there's also, it, it, there's also, I mean, you know, when you talk about colorizing, it's funny you bring that up in a positive light, considering, of course, the reason the National Film Registry was created in the first place was because Ted Turner, like a maniac, was trying to colorize old silent narrative films. But I think that the difference is, you know, when you look at like today, Tom sent me something uh, that's been going on on Twitter. I don't know if you've seen it, Matt, but um, somebody colorized a, uh, a footage from the Lumiere brothers of a snowball fight. Not just colorized, oh, but also yeah. but they also, also they also fixed, yeah they speed adjusted yes. it as well. I did see that. Yeah, that's and some trippy shit. It's stunning and it's great, and I think that there's a difference between I would love to see more of that Lumiere footage uh, colorized and done like they just did or like they shall not grow old. However, if somebody ever tried to, to bring up a film we just did an episode on, if somebody ever tried to colorize Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, I would want them tried for war crimes. So it's a weird kind of a thing. And I guess part of that is what the well, Lumiere brothers... to happen in November in 2020. <laughs> that's that's going to be the big thing. It's the big campaign issue this year is will you colorize... Oh, well. <laughs> Well, Mr. Mr. Trump is coming to uh, Colorado my movie, and uh, I'm going to crawl out of my grave here, and I'm going to throttle him. Uh, this is So this is the second episode in a row where we're going to talk about Jimmy Stewart rising out of his grave. Great. Okay. We're setting a fun precedent here. Um, but no, there's something about uh, being able to capture something as best you can. I mean, you know, to take it back to, to Matthew's work, I mean, you know, the reason that things like uh, Defunct Land or what have you uh, really resonate with some people, or or um, Class Action Park that was just on uh, HBO Max. Um, the reason these things resonate with people is you want to be able to experience something you otherwise can't. I mean, there are plenty of people who will obsessively watch ride-through videos of rides at home, and while you're not getting the same experience, you just want to know what it was like. And especially, you know, for someone like me, I think you, know, you, you mentioned Horizons. I rode Horizons uh, maybe in 1994. Five. I was like five years old. Like I have no, almost it. no recollection of it. Yeah. <laughs> so I, my apologies. Uh, I don't remember <laughs> if it helps at all. I think I remembered the only thing that really came back to me when I was watching uh, the Hoot and Chief doc short is I do faintly remember the spinning head chef robot, and really? I remember I, rem- I faintly remember that. I I, I have va- the vaguest memories because we used to go to Disney World like every year when I was a kid. And then, like, post-9-11, I have not been back. So I have no idea. Um, But it is something for people who never experienced that stuff. Having that footage and and being able to kind of just get a sense of something that once was. And, you know, think about with the Nook of the North or or with Moana or Man the Isle or any of the other films that Flaherty made. It was about capturing a people and a time and a place that could be immortalized and could be accessible to everyone. And that it's was so kind of what the beauty of film was. Yeah. No, please. I please. was just going to say, uh, what's, what's so interesting about what we're talking about is, you know, you look at something like the Nook of the North, which is fantastic, fantastically captured and also fantastically restored. 
mm-hmm. but yeah. something like the concert footage for Halix, which is horribly captured and just the worst quality, something like that reels me in so much more just from the fact of it having the sound that pulls me in. It's such a weird thing, and that's, I guess, it is a personal thing, but I do feel like it is like a pretty common personal thing. I feel like most people would probably agree that sound is way more important than visuals. But that is something that I loved what you were talking about with um, things like They Shall Not Grow Old because something that that movie captures so well is not only the aspect of like, oh, wow, this is what it's, you know, this is what it was really like and, you know, these people are no different than the way that we are now and things haven't really changed. And to me, what really drove that home of, wow, things really haven't changed is... You go through this whole experience with these boys and then they all come home and hearing them as old men talk about, yeah, we came home and everyone just talked as if they served in the war. We all would just look at each other and go, you weren't there. You don't know what you're talking about. You're just saying things. You don't even know what you're talking about. And me just sitting there thinking, God, we have really not changed at all. Or just even them, like it, it blew my mind when that movie, like towards that last section and like, Oh yeah, like there was just a mass uh, unemployment crisis. Uh, businesses were even putting up signs: "Ex-servicemen need not apply." And I'm just like, "Holy shit!" Things really haven't changed. Of just throwing, and I and you're right. I think I do think sound is a big problem with a lot of people, and is kind of you know because we could watch footage and we, but we also know like, well, there was sound. We're not hearing the stuff that was actually going on, which is another thing that makes. They shall not grow so great as you know. He painstakingly has, um, you know, sound effects, sound effects. Yeah, yeah. And so it's not. It's not just having this uh, old uh, audio footage of World War One vets talking about their experiences over this footage. It's like having artillery shells going off and having you know the lip readers and having somebody read what these people are saying and just fully more immersing you and. Yeah, uh, it's it's a personal thing, but I think uh, those people with that personal experience kind of uh, kind of are, uh, heavily outnumber those of us that it's not a problem because uh, I think really only film people could kind of watch this shit and not have a problem with it. Whereas uh, I don't think my dad would watch Nanook of the North for <laughs> five minutes before falling asleep and not because he'd be like, no, yeah, it's interesting. I like documentaries, but you know, it's kind of quiet and not much is going on or whatever, you know. I Well, it's funny you guys mentioned sound because uh, not with this film, but uh, Flaherty's follow-up, uh, Moana, which came out in 1926, uh, which was filmed in Samoa. So there's the same idea as Nanook of the North, but capturing Samoan life. Decades later, Robert and Francis's daughter uh, would go on to attempt to bring new life to the film by creating a soundtrack for it. And so she teamed up, and this is my favorite pairing, with uh, Richard Leacock, who was a documentarian who had worked on some of the films that, you know, like Monterey Pop. He had worked on uh, the, a film we'll be talking about next season, Primary, the, the JFK documentary uh, with the Maisels and Panabaker uh, and Robert Drew, but also with Jean Renoir. So Jean Renoir also participated in this uh, idea. It was a restoration. It was called Moana with Sound. And they added ambient sounds of village life and rushing water 
and added in dubbed in some Samoan dialogue and singing to try and help make the footage and the the experience even more immersive. Uh, and that was done in let me see, it's 1980 that was done. So wow. you know there was an attempt at least on that film to try and add even more uh, ambiance to it. Um, that's why I is, think that's why I think um, Fritz Lang's film M is so impressive because you have like such an early attempt at really trying to do like you know not just obviously dialogue but then trying to do foley as well and because it's a thriller like really actually like immerses you a ton and is more thrilling than a lot of modern day thrillers in my opinion oh yeah oh yeah and and speaking of fritz lang if you if you have some issues with silence uh matt uh have you ever seen the giorgio Moroder cut of metropolis Oh my god, no. I need to watch that now. Oh, oh, you would be another film that I've tried I think 3 times to watch all the way through. I I adore the original Metropolis, but there's something so weird about the Giorgio Moroder version which is basically Moroder uh they they recut the film so it's much shorter now. Oh. Uh they recut the film, but the way that they trimmed a lot of it down is they pull out all of the title cards and instead have them as subtitles on screen. So it's oh, subtitles the character talking, and then it uses all uh, '80s synth music and pop songs. So there's like I think there's oh, uh, no uh, Freddie Mercury, Pat Benatar, uh, Bonnie Tyler, Lover Boy, Billy Squire, Adamant, like all these '80s synth songs are oh. are providing wow. the soundtrack. And it's yeah, it's what I looked it up. It's 83 minutes as opposed to three hours. Um. Well, that'll get you done quicker. Yeah. So if you have not seen the Giorgio Moroder cut of Metropolis, that seems like that should be, especially as a guy who's big on Horizons and that whole aesthetic, that is that sounds so far in your wheelhouse. That uh, is so up my alley. You have no <laughs> idea. Well, it's it's fun, you know. It, it's and fun. as a lover of '80s music too, now with Halix, oh. I would say I say now as if I wasn't before. I already was. Halix is like a perfect combination of like I'm a Star Wars fan. I'm a Disney theme park fan. I'm a rock rock and roll fan and a lover of obscure things. So yeah. being able to work on that was like, oh yeah, this doesn't feel like homework at all. I'm, yeah. I will yeah. admit, Halix was like you hit Mike like a bullseye right in his fucking this, the the pleasure <laughs> section of his brain. All I mean, those things you mentioned was just like, oh, this is Mike. It's it's so I look I will I admit that I have listened to that cover of Hey There Boys more times than I want to admit yeah sure sure you know I've I've, I've, I've maybe listened to it a couple times since you know well uh, it's and it's funny too just mentioning the Metropolis thing you because uh, I, I I told Mike that I'm going through all of the Universal horror movies of of that time and uh they did and it's on the Blu-ray uh Philip Glass rescored Dracula because Dracula was like still was shot kind of like a silent movie there's not a lot of sound there's not a lot of score there's not it's a very quiet and it makes it kind of hard i feel like dracula would be harder for people today to watch than like frankenstein or the invisible man so philip glass did a score to make it feel more modern and i i really want to rewatch that i I really want to watch that because that sounds like I mean, Philip Glass just fucking rocks. So I mean, yeah, I love Philip Glass's work, and so I'm very interested in that. But it is funny because, 
you know, we were talking about, you know, like sound helping immerse. Like, see, like for me, it's like all I need is just a sound to associate with the image. Because for me, actually, because I just recently went through and watched all the classic Universal Monster movies. I was shocked because I don't like vampires. I never cared for Dracula. But when I watched through all the classic monster movies, Dracula 1931, uh, the English version is my favorite. I have yet to watch the Spanish version. Hey, listen, that'll be, you know, in in like seasons, you know, in season 16, we're going to have to do that. So, you know, in, in, you know, 15 years, if you want to come back for that, you're more than welcome for Spanish <laughs> Dracula. Yeah, hopefully by then I can actually um, understand Spanish and uh, bring honor to my family. Uh, and then I can watch it without subtitles. It's a it's a very interesting experience because it's uh, like thirty minutes longer, but it's essentially the same oh, movie. Really? So it's just it's kind of just like it breathes a little more without. Re- There's like a, an extra scene or two, but it's ultimately the same movie and the same sets with the same score. But the casting is not as good as like Bella Lugosi as Va- Dracula and Edward Van Sloan as Van Helsing. It's just like they, I I'd put them equal just for like different pros and cons. But uh, Invisible Man's my favorite Universal Monster movie by a, by a large portion. Uh, Claude Rains for Life. Well, it's, except, you know, you mentioned that. I will say this. I think that talking about the Universal Monster movies, and let's, you know, pull Claude Rains in. I love Claude Rains. Tom knows this. We just got to talk about him last week with uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, we're going to get to keep talking about him because I know we got Lawrence of Arabia coming up in a future season. Love Claude Rains. That said... The Claude Rains Phantom of the Opera, the with sound and all that, is, I believe, inferior to the Lon Chaney silent Phantom of the Opera. Well, I am... Jesus, I'm like 20 movies away from that one. So, it'll be a while till I get to Claude Rains' Phantom. Oh, yeah, why? What, you have a lot going on? Got a lot of, going out to a lot, lot of parties? Doing on. a lot of traveling? No, I'm not <laughs> traveling. <laughs> no, there's just like... Because I'm not just doing the monster movies. I'm doing, like, universal horror. So, nonsense, I... like... Night Key, Tower of London, Black Friday, The Old the Dark House. And oh, I skipped all of those. I just got to the good ones. I just went straight to, okay. Let's uh, no, see. I'm, I'm, see I'm doing everything. Wow. I'm doing everything. Because um, I, I listened to a podcast where they ranked the Universal Monster movies, and they were talking very like highly of some of the sequels. And I was like, fuck, I want to see some of these. I, wanna, I just got into the mood for all these old-ass horror movies. And listen... Vincent Price played the Invisible Man in one one of these sequels, so uh, I have to watch that. Gotta love that Dracula's daughter was like, oh, 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 Bride of Frankenstein thinks it's going to be the most, uh, you know, have the most homosexual undertones of any Universal movie? (laughs) We'll see about that. God love it. Dracula's daughter. Listen, these movies are pretty good. I mean, James Whale was supposed to do Dracula's daughter. Yes, which is, you know, what, what I would have given. And you see, I, I will say this, uh, Matt, uh, part of the reason that we're able to go off on these tangents is I usually wrap up the episodes talking about the Oscars that year. Every movie we've done so far, uh, I've talked about the Oscars. There are none. Yeah, the Oscars right. did not exist at this point. For another few years, right? Uh, yeah. And they would not, rec- 1927, and they would not even recognize documentaries until we're getting into like wartime. So what was the Shrek of documentaries that really uh, catapulted us into having, <laughs> having the, uh, the category? That really is one of the best facts. I always remembered it in my head because I was a kid when all these happened. I always remembered it that Spirited Away won the first 
animated feature, but no, Shrek came it before. Was, it was the first animated feature. Or wait, was it Beauty and the Beast or was it Spirited Away that was the first animated feature nominated for just Beauty and the Beast? Beauty and the Beast oh, was the first animated feature for Best Picture. It was the first that's animated. the Beauty and the Beast thing is kind of what undid Katzenberg because after Beauty and the Beast gets up for Best Picture, he gets real fucking determined to win Best Picture for an animated film, starts dumping all of his time and money into Pocahontas, uh, which does not pan out for him. And he gets that's this why... really crazy idea about watching TV shows on the go with these quick bites of. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that comes a bit a, was... later, but. Beauty and the Beast just got this idea of people want to watch things <laughs> with by pausing for 10 minutes every day and not actually enjoying what they're watching. Good job, Katzenberg. You would think that after <laughs> Beauty and the Beast being nominated, that's when the Academy would be like, well, I guess we need to have a Best Animated Feature category. No, they'd wait about nine years. Good. They're like, oh, finally, a good animated film. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good job. And, and guys, guys. Look, we can't hold it against them. With the overwhelming films of Shrek and Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius, they had to create a category for them. I love how that was what set them over over the over the the Waterfather. Like, all right, fine, we gotta let in Jimmy Neutron. Uh, all right, all right. There is a donkey. There is a donkey. You know, Jimmy Neutron votes for Trump, right? <laughs> so, to answer your question, Matt, about the uh, the 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 film that won, so. Best Documentary Short Subject actually became a category before Best Documentary Feature. Wow. That, was it because there were more shorts than features? That, and when they created the shorts categories, originally it was just uh, animated short and then live action short one reel and live, live action short two reel, which meant that the live action short categories had a lot of documentaries in them. And in fact, some of the early winners for Best Live Action Short are documentaries, whether they're, you know, there's one about bees, there's one about uh, sex life of polyps and stuff. Um, but the uh, then it, they created the Best documentary Short category in 1941 for a propaganda film called Churchill's Island, which is about oh, British great. defense during the Second World War. And then in 1942, they create the Best Documentary Feature category and four different films win the award. So... <laughs> Four films won Best Documentary Feature in the you first You get an show. Oscar. You get an Oscar. You get an Oscar. Well, and what it is... we get participation trophies. <laughs> well, what it is, if you look yeah, right? at it, it's Frank Capra's Prelude to War. It's John Ford's Battle of Midway. Uh, Kokoda Frontline, which is an Australian war documentary. And Moscow Strikes Back. So, essentially, if you watched... Uh, if you watched Five Came Back, the Netflix special... Um, the Netflix documentary miniseries about the directors who went off to war, which, right. uh, if you haven't seen it, highly recommend to anybody. Um, if you watch it, it was essentially this category was kind of created to reward, uh, the five came back and, and the people making these war documents. Interestingly enough, to tie it into your wheelhouse, uh, Walt Disney was nominated for best documentary feature, uh, in that first year. Really? Uh, for a couple of films. He had The Grain That Built the Hemisphere, which is one of his propaganda films, and also, weirdly, uh, a Donald Duck film. Oh, was it the Donald Duck film with the the, the Hot no. Hitler one? No, that's Der Fuhrer's Face. That wins Best Animated Short, like, a year or two later. No, this is, this is an animated Donald Duck cartoon about the importance of paying your income taxes. And that was nominated <laughs> for... I'm not, I think I've also seen that one. <laughs> well, that was nominated timely. for Best Documentary Feature. 
Um, which I will I will just say not to take us off on too much tangent. Best documentary feature, a fascinating uh, Oscar rabbit hole to dive down. Uh, there is one from I mentioned it on a previous episode. There's one from 1947 called Design for Death that has uh, not been shown uh, in the last 50 years uh, because it is hella hella racist and written by Dr. Seuss. Oh, of course. Design for Death. We will probably never see that. <laughs> he apparently regretted it immediately after, but it was it was World War II, and they were like, let's tell you about Japan, and that never ends well. Uh-oh. Not one. There is not one World War II era film that goes, let's tell you about the Japanese, where I go, this was a reasoned response. Um, <laughs> which is, <laughs> honestly, that's kind of to take it back to Nanook. The thing that I find so impressive about this is it's 1922 this is the kind of thing this is you know around the same time and obviously uh you know it's 1915 or 1916 but you know this is around the time of dw griffith and birth of a nation and intolerance and so you would expect going into this that you would watch a movie that would be so insanely clinical and condescending and instead it's so compassionate and empathetic to its subject and it treats Nanook as human and valid and and real and, and in a very compassionate and, and sincere way, which is, you know, remarkable anyway uh, for 19, but especially for 1922. Yeah. He, you know, you feel it. You care about him and the film wants you to care about him. You know, there's little you have to overcome with that, but I think it's so impressive. It's funny to think that this film is being remembered and recognized because of the fact that in all respects, and I mean this with with the utmost respect, that it did the absolute bare minimum <laughs> <laughs> in terms of not only yeah. um, the craft of documentary filmmaking, but also um, in the representation of its subject matter. Well, it's because it's what's remarkable is how long it takes for us to learn the lessons that this film seemingly just knew right off the bat because it's, it doesn't get like this. I mean, to talk about documentary winners, you know, look a couple years into best documentary uh, feature. And there's a film called daybreak in Udi, which is the most condescending British colonialist shit. There's nothing that feels colonialist or imperialist about this. It is, it is made with admiration. And the thing is Flaherty's films all seem to have that. Which you, you know, you, you, I mean, the, the thing that's interesting too, um, there's almost nothing, like you guys are saying, there's almost nothing outside information about this film. I have the Criterion DVD of The Nook of the North, which is one of the earliest Criterion DVDs. Now they're well into the spine 1,200 and whatever. Uh, this is spine number 33, so pretty early on in the run. The only stuff they have in there is they have a mini essay and they have an interview with his wife, Frances, uh, from like the 80s. And even listening to her, you really get this sense. They didn't see themselves as uh, scholars or or anything other than one person documenting another person's life. Instead of, you know, coming at it with some kind of sense of, of, of uh, you know, uh, observation and trying to, to um, deconstruct something or, or anything like that. There was just, a, you know, a, two people and one happened to have a camera to capture the other and it's so easy when you're making one of these films when you're making a documentary it is easy to think you're better than what you're filming because you are in control i mean matt you know to bring it back to yeah. to um 
uh, please remain seated. Uh, to bring it back to your, your short, it would have been very easy for somebody else to have made that film and made that film from the angle of, and I, I mean this is in this is what somebody could have done. I'm not casting as It'd be easy for somebody to go look at these two Florida scumbag teens and laugh at it and and laugh at them. And the same thing with Halix. It would have been very easy to make something that was look at this dorky, dumb band. You could have done that. You know, there was a guy dressed up as a weird panda Chewbacca. You could have made him look like a dick, and you didn't. And you you came to it with empathy, and you saw it as just other human beings whose story you wanted to tell. That is the one real, you know, and, and why I wanted you on for this. That is the one real through line um, from 1922, uh, Flaherty ha- bringing his camera out on an expedition to, you know, you and you and Kevin Perger are talking about this weird Disneyland Star Wars band is that there is coming at it from a sense of empathy and wanting to tell not just a story, but to tell someone's story. And I'm so glad that you, I, I love your usage of the word empathy because yeah, that, that is something that I really try to approach lots of things with, you know, not just in documentary films, but like I'm also the kind of person that like can sit here and tell you with a straight face that like, you know, some movie that other people might deem as being high art is not as good of a movie as the Muppet movie, you know, because to me, it's like it, none of that stuff matters. Like all, all that matters is just getting down to the, uh, the, the, just the bones of the thing and just and just knowing the things that you care about and and that being at the end of the day all that really matters and yeah like in terms of telling other people's stories you know not um oh it's kind of a hard thing to put into words you put it into much better words than i did or i ever could but yeah not feeling like you're above uh any subject matter whether you're talking about a person or you're talking about a person's life and that's what I really appreciate about Nanook of the North. It's really admirable that you have a film that's just like, yeah, here is this guy's light and just documenting it just without like no like and it's, it's a hard thing to describe. It's almost like for me, I'm a huge fan of musicals mm-hmm. and I love movie musicals, animated musicals, stage musicals, whatever. And I know that Damien Chazelle talked about this a little bit about the making of La La Land where he was like, he's like, we didn't want to make a musical where we have to apologize right before we go into song and dance. Mm-hmm. Like, I really appreciate movies that are unapologetically like, you know, the, the unapologetically tell their story or unapologetically uh, tell their story in the way they want to or have the characters that they want. And that's something I appreciate about Nanook of the North. I like that Nanook of the North is not like, you know, watch how the savage puts this thing together. It's no, here is this guy's life. This is what he does every single day. Matthew, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, yeah, thank you so much, man. And not only are you welcome back, you know, at any time for future seasons, but also sincerely, and I, I mean it, if uh, when, when everything, when this virus is done and people can go about places again, uh, if you ever find yourself in New York, uh, you know, you've got a ride on the Coney Island Wonder Wheel on us. Oh, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. I've always I've always wanted to go to Coney Island, so you've got it. <laughs> Don't offer my money up for me, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you. I, I, I mean, of course, like anyone that has been asking me uh, for interviews, I've been 
happy to do because if it weren't for everyone saying yes to doing the interviews in my movie, we wouldn't have a movie, and we wouldn't. I wouldn't be in the position to be asked on all these podcasts. So <laughs> happy to to take part. Thank you for inviting. And people uh, can and absolutely should check out live from the space stage a Halix story because it is now on YouTube. I know you guys were trying to do. Uh, you were originally planning on doing the festival circuit on this film, and then um, all of film festivals uh, imploded. Yes. Why? Did something happen? Well, back in 2016, there is an election. Um, <laughs> now we'll get to another time. Um, but it's it's been... I will tell you this, uh, Matt. You may be finding yourself thinking, oh, man, I created a film right before the pandemic. I didn't get a chance to submit it to festivals. I wish I had. I can tell you, as somebody who currently has a film that is attempting to crawl its way through the shattered festival circuit. Uh, you lucked out. It's a miserable experience. I have no idea what's happening. We kind of had a feeling. Uh, we didn't feel good about what the film festival situation would look like. And so our kind of thinking was, well, uh, if we get this done in the next few months, we could possibly be, be putting out our film during a time when absolutely nothing is going on. And everyone is just kind of sitting around going, oh, hey, what's this Halix thing? And that did kind of work out in our favor. Uh, I am sorry to hear that. I'm not like <laughs> celebrating that film festivals sound like a massive piece of shit right now. I actually am really sorry that you're going through a hard time in the festival circuit. I was actually curious to see what the festival circuit was like from somebody. So I mean, a- it's I've I've got my film is having its uh, my short is having its premiere Wednesday night uh, in a virtual festival. Kyle, uh, our producer, right before we recorded, asked me, so how is this going to work? And I had to tell him, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> you always picture it on the biggest screen possible, which is someone's laptop. Uh, it's always what you envision. Kassenberg had the right idea. <laughs> well, without spoiling anything, uh, if you stay tuned to my social media, I think there's going to be some, I think there will be some opportunities to see Helix on the big screen. Oh, all right. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, in a safe, in a safe COVID uh, environment way. If people do want to follow you on social media, Matthew, how can they How can they do that? Let's give some folks some plugs, some links, whatever you want to do. Sure. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Matthew underscore Serrano. You can find me on Twitter at Matthew G Serrano. You can find me on YouTube with Matthew Serrano. And uh, yeah, check out Live from the Space Stage, a Halix story, which is on the Funk Fan YouTube channel. If you're listening to this podcast, you could be watching it. You have access to the internet, and it's free. So oh. you have no excuses. Oh, good. I th- For a minute, I swear to God, I thought you were saying, if you're listening to this podcast, you could be watching that instead. And I was like, well, that's not a way to go out. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have, you have the capabilities of seeing it after you have listened to this episode. <laughs> well, Matthew Serrano, thank you so much for joining us. You're, you're welcome back anytime. This has been absolutely great. Thank you, guys. Tom, I'm really uh, glad to hear that you finally got around to watching uh, They Shall Not Grow Old. That actually ended up being one of my uh, late night or late contenders uh, for uh, my favorite film that year. I think it came out, what, end of 2018? Yeah, Christmas 2018, because that's when my life fell apart. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But no, yeah, it's a great movie. It's a great movie, and it felt like the perfect time to finally get to it, uh, since it would uh, pair pretty well with uh, the movie at hand, Nanook of the North. Was I planning on having you talk about Adventureland and Good Time today? No, I love Adventureland. That's one of my favorite movies, too. So the fact that it's even anyway remotely connected to 
uh, that theme park blows my mind. So. Yeah, in fact, Adventureland was featured in uh, the actual park was featured in Good Time. It was also in the Hugh Grant, Drew Barrymore rom-com music and lyrics. I saw it in theaters not knowing that. And then when Hugh Grant says Adventureland, Long Island's number one family fun park, it blew my mind. So, gentlemen, what films would you both pick to add to the registry? A reminder to our listeners that it must be an American film that's at least 10 years old. It was kind of hard at the beginning trying to think about something to fit with this for me. Um, but it actually came pretty quickly, um, mainly because what I kind of came away with with this movie is uh like i kind of mentioned it in the episode is that maybe the most interesting element of this movie is that what's what's real what isn't does it ultimately matter and how really be there being no information or facts or anything really to any background information at all to help in this discussion makes this movie really interesting in that regards of you know what's true what's not uh, what rules should documentary films face what what should they follow i should say um all of these things and um brought me to a documentary that is all about those things it's a movie about truth lies what's real what isn't uh, it's you know there's really no beating around the bush here we mentioned it in the episode it's f for fake Orson Welles, uh, the absolute maniac he became as he was an older man, uh, just pulls maybe, I mean, if he didn't have Citizen Kane on his filmography, maybe one of the greatest magic tricks he's ever pulled on screen of giving you this great documentary about, you know, art and art forgery and all this stuff and basically telling you, like, at some point I'm going to lie to you and there's going to be a point where I'm going to lie. and when he reveals what he's what's been a lie, you go, oh fuck, okay, and it really recontextualizes the entire movie for you, and it starts making you think, what's reality? What isn't? What's true? What's honest? All this stuff, and uh, I I think it's pretty great. I think it's one of the greats. I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, the last completed thing he ever released because that was right around the time of the other side of the wind, and he never finished that. Um, I think it sums up a lot of Orson Welles and his lore. It's, I mean, it's the last thing he did, and luckily it's not like, you know, the last thing Billy Wilder did, where it's just some embarrassment. He made a great movie, a groundbreaking movie, a metatextual, four-dimensional mindfuck of a movie, and it's all entertaining without ever being, like, a TED Talk. It's, uh, I, th I think it's really great, and, uh... Yeah, F for fake, I think, uh, should be thrown into the film registry. And honestly, honestly, I'm kind of quite shocked it isn't already. I only have one thing to say to that, Tom. Uh -huh. That doesn't make any sense. Sorry, there's there's no known way of saying an English sentence in which you begin a sentence with in and emphasize it. Get me a jury to show me how you can say in July and I'll go down on you. That's just idiotic. My pick for the registry, I, I had a bit of a challenge with this one, too. It's, it's, you know, and, and I had the same thing with Tom, uh, that Tom did, which is the idea of like, you could just pick a documentary and put it in here and be like, ah, they're the same, but there's so much more to Nook and, and what it's doing. And then the way that it blends faction fiction. And also I was thinking about the complicated legacy of Nook of the North, both that it is, uh, it is documentary and it gave us documentaries, uh, uh, you know, throughout history. 
uh, you wouldn't have pretty much any of this stuff. You wouldn't have uh, even the most innocuous things, the most wholesome things like March of the Penguins without it. But you also get Mondo Kane and the exploitation documentaries. I mean, you know, the fact that for a brief moment in an attempt to depict reality, you see uh, a, a woman's bare breasts in this film is a through line to the point where you get the films that are supposedly nature documentaries like Sky Above, Mud Below, which are just an excuse to show nude women and exploit women and, and, and people of other cultures. So it's a complicated legacy of ethnography, which is the specific subgenre of Nick Thurth, is ethnography. And I was thinking about that and how that has been tackled in cinema. And so I thought of a film that, uh, much like Tom was saying about Effervake, it truly shocks me that this film is not in the registry because it is so much what the registry is about. I was thinking of a film that kind of took the language of documentary and, and the way that it had been used to otherize people and somebody who had been otherized turning that camera back on himself and his community in a way that also blends documentary footage with uh, staged moments and, and pieces of performance art, um, which is Marlon Riggs exceptional 1989 documentary tongues untied uh tongues untied is is truly one of the most remarkable uh pieces of uh experimental film and art filmmaking in american history um in 1989 it depicts uh what it is like to be a black gay man it is about the black gay identity and the inability to be who you are because you are not just excluded from white straight life and black straight life, but even white gay life. Um, it's an incredible work that interweaves documentary footage, including uh, very, uh, you know, intimate moments. Uh, it tackles the AIDS crisis. It tackles life in New York. It also incorporates clips from ranging from everything from the civil rights movement to uh, Eddie Murphy's uh, homophobic uh, jokes during his stand-up specials. And it's all about this sense of exclusion, trying to find community. Um, what's remarkable uh, about its legacy is the fact that it was supposed to be played on PBS because it had received public arts funding and it caused a firestorm. Uh, where Pat Buchanan came out against it and said it was it was sinful and evil, and uh, you know the Association of American Family was talking about this is what we spend our taxpayers on to show two men kissing. It's 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 disgusting. It's vile. It's evil. It caused so much uh, hoopla and chaos. It's absolutely a, a remarkable piece of work, and it truly. Uh, I, I think in just last year, uh, the Peabody Awards did a tribute to Tongues of Tide and, and Billy Porter uh, came out and spoke about it, which is so remarkable that in 1989, this film was a cause of controversy. And then uh, the first uh, gay black man to win an Emmy uh, for pose of all things um, gets to come out and present a tribute to it. It's an incredible work. It's a it absolutely uh, belongs to the national film industry and uses the tools that Flaherty established and that so many uh, white filmmakers used to exploit and it uses it to to exp uh, for self-expression in a truly incredible way. Thank you for listening and thanks to Matthew Serrano for joining us. 
Be sure to check out his newest documentary, Live from the Space Stage, a Halix story on the Defunct Land YouTube channel. Also, be sure to follow him on social media at Matthew G. Serrano. You can also follow our co-hosts on social media as well. You can find Mike at NKOAS and Tom at Raging Bull 1990. While you're there, be sure to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at YMO Podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps a little show like ours. If you know some friends who might like the show, tell them about it. And if you have someone you think would make a great guest for an upcoming film, tell us about it at yourmissingoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time.